You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I think most Americans, if you look at the surveys, they they love the idea of America as a land of immigrants. But they long for a time when minorities were less visible, less loud, and basically more grateful. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, a network where I podcast. I have been thinking, obsessing about political polarization lately, the, the ways in which we're sorting into tribes. And, and one of the reasons I'm obsessing about this is that my background is as a policy reporter. And policy is positive sum. You can almost always think of something just in your head, assuming it works, that if you passed it, it could be better than the status quo. If you're just crafting a deal, there is usually a lot you can do. But a lot of our political problems do not feel positive sum. A lot of our political problems don't even feel to me right now like they have solutions. And, and, and polarization is one of those. Our tribal identities run deep. Our tribal thinking happens sub-rationally. And yet it is driving American politics. The, the barrier between us and solving a lot of the questions that, that we need to be able to solve in this country is not an inability to think of a policy compromise, but an inability to overcome our tribal divisions, uh, an inability to overcome the sense that if the other side gets a victory here, we will lose. The inability to overcome the fear that if the other side gets elected, that, that our side is going to lose in fundamental ways power, status, respect. I mean, it, it, it hits very deep in, in the lizard brain. So a couple of weeks ago, Amy Chua's new book came across my desk. It's called Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations. Um, you may know uh, Professor Chua. She has written a bunch of other books, including World on Fire and Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. She's a professor at Yale Law. This book is, is fascinating to me. It's both about how Americans, for reasons related to our national creed and our national history, how when we conduct our foreign policy abroad, we consistently and often disastrously underestimate the power of tribes. Um, we've done this in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Vietnam, that because we often don't think tribally, or at least don't admit that we think tribally, we go abroad and <laughs> screw everything up because we don't realize that tribal divisions often structure society. But also, that's increasingly true at home. We're having a lot of trouble talking about that, admitting that. I mean, we lament it. But, but I don't think we quite know what to do with it. So I was excited to have her on the podcast to have a conversation around this. I think something you're going to hear in the conversation here is a lot of pessimism from me. 
uh, and I am pessimistic. And I think sometimes it's important to be. I think that we can have a tendency in political commentary to always try to come up with the answer, to always to, to, to lay out these hard problems and say, look, we have a solution. And I, I want to be honest, and I want on this podcast for us to have honest conversations. Sometimes problems are hard because there aren't obvious solutions. And uh, Professor Chu and I talk a little bit about that. I think she's a little bit more optimistic than I am. But I think there is reason to see this as a problem that not only is very hard to solve, but that the underlying dynamics make it likely to get worse. And so for now, what I want to try to do is map its boundaries to, to, to make us aware of the ways in which it's operating and the ways in which it runs deep on us. It's not a momentary political epiphenomenon, but it is something deep in society, something deep in the way the human animal is built, and something that changes in communication technology, changes in the way our political coalitions are structured, have become a sort of perfect storm for exacerbating. Um, before we jump into the podcast, uh, I have one big request for you. And and if you, you care about this podcast, if you, you take my word as weight on anything, I'm going to ask you to do this one thing, which is go subscribe to Today Explained. Just take a sec. I'm going to wait. Just have to, whatever podcast app you're in, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it may be, go check out Today Explained. This is a project that we've been working on for months here. It is one of the things I'm most excited about that we're doing. It is a daily podcast diving deep into some story in the news, um, really trying to give you a, a sense of it, really trying to slow the news cycle down so that we have time to understand the context of it, why the things that are happening are happening. I am amazed at what the team is doing. Um, I've been very involved in it. I'm really proud of what we've built. And I would really be grateful if you would just take a sec, go hit subscribe. If you've already subscribed, go rate it so other people see it come up in the algorithm. But this is a, a big launch for us. It's something that I really think is going to be useful to people, that it is part of the Vox mission to explain the news. And I would love it. Really, really appreciate it if you would give it a shot. Um, with that said, and, and assuming all of you have done that, here is Amy Chua. Amy Chua, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ezra. So I wanted to talk about one of the big frames of the book that I found really helpful. Why is it particularly difficult for Americans to see the power of tribal identity abroad and at home? I think it's rooted in the best of America and the worst of America. I mean, almost quite literally. So on the one hand, I mean, even compared to the British, when the British were colonizers, they were fastidiously group conscious and tribally conscious. I mean, in a way that was divide and conquer and led to terrible circumstances. But they had whole books on all the different castes that the Indians had and, you know, all the different religions and whom to pit against whom. The United States, we have had more success with diversity and assimilating people from different religions and backgrounds than probably any other country. So from our perspective, you know, our policymakers' perspective, or just ordinary Americans, it's if Italians and Irish and Japanese and Chinese could all become Americans, why wouldn't Kurds, Shias, and Sunnis all become Iraqis? You just need to have some elections. That's sort of the positive side. The negative side is really just racism. We have a long history of talking about how we're a group-blind country, even at the same time that we have slavery and, you know, um, just massive exclusions. And so, for example, I write about Vietnam, and a lot of people just couldn't tell the difference between the Vietnamese majority and the tiny 1% Chinese minority. 
that is hated there. But from the point of view of Americans, it was like, ah, they're all gooks, slanty-eyed gooks. So, so, uh, so those are two parts of it. But, but, but this seemed like a very big thing because the idea that recognizing tribalism conflicts with America's identity, it feels powerful in explaining both sometimes our, our, our missteps abroad, but, but also some things at home. I mean, something that I think has been a, a fascinating part of the conversation around identity politics right now in America, but honestly, going back quite a bit, is that we've had a dominant majority that manages to just have what it sees as politics, right? When you when you are talking about taxes or you're talking about things that are, are often of benefit, you know, the GI Bill to the white majority, it's just politics. But then when you have a group that is not the, the sort of Christian white majority talking, it's identity politics. And that effort to say that there is a dominant culture, that, 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 that there is this kind of American identity, but that American identity is actually conflated in, in certain contexts with the dominant group, has, I think, been a, a, a two-step that in some ways is now coming apart with a lot of danger, but is also at times been a helpful illusion to have, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's also why we romanticize democracy and why we think that free markets and democracy always go together. The truth is that this country for, you know, almost 200 years was dominated economically, politically, and culturally by a white majority. And that is politically very stable in a kind of invidious way, you know, because basically the minorities just stay oppressed, but you don't get all these upheavals. And that's partly what I say in the book is that's why we keep thinking that democracy is going to be the panacea in countries like Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan or the former Yugoslavia, because that's been our experience when, in fact, it's just masking the fact that we've always had a very dominant majority and democracies tend to, you know, favor the majorities. Now, one of the reasons that we're we're seeing so much disruption right now, um, and I think people are very incoherent about it, they're trying to say, you know, um, is because we've had massive demographic changes. And for the first time, whites are on the verge of not being a majority anymore. And more than that, even at this point, a lot of white Americans feel like they are already being culturally undermined, that, you know, a, a different culture is starting to dominate them. And because now every group in America, in a sense, feels threatened, you know, not just minorities, but whites feel threatened, not just uh, Muslims and Jews, but Christians feel threatened, not just women, but men feel threatened. That's partly why you're seeing um, identity politics sort of in a more open way on all sides, when, of course, you were right. I mean, we've always had identity politics, if by that you mean social movements based on certain groups' identity. So I, I want to put um, a, a pin in two of those things. The the idea of cultural dominance as being a live issue in American life right now, and also the, the idea, which I think is super important, that all groups feel under threat. But I want to back us way out for a minute, because something I really admired about your book is that it's a book about politics, both international and, and national, but it is rooted in a view of human nature, a view of human nature that is in some ways at odds with Enlightenment thinking and certainly is at odds with the American creed, which is that we are fundamentally very tribal, that the, the instinct to both belong to a group and to exclude to other groups is one of our deepest, most fundamentally rooted instincts. And I'd like you to describe a study that you talk about in the book, which is what happened when researchers just gave children red shirts and blue shirts. Because 
I think it, it's such a great example of, of how deep this runs in us. Well, this is astonishing. They took um, a group of random kids, I don't know, between the ages of five and 10, I think, and they just randomly assigned half of them red t-shirts and the other half blue. And then they put them at these computer docks and showed them pictures of very similar kinds of kids, but some wearing blue t-shirts and some wearing red t-shirts. And the investigators, the researchers asked a bunch of questions, and it was absolutely astounding. These children, without knowing a thing about the people you know, whose pictures they were seeing, would consistently say that the people wearing the shirt color that was on their quote-unquote team, even though they'd never even met these people, they would rate them as smarter, better, more moral. When told stories about both groups, they would systematically remember all the good things about the people wearing their shirt color and all the bad things about people wearing the other shirt color. So what this shows is just how hardwired we are to want to sort ourselves into these groups, even along the flimsiest of lines. I mean, these people didn't even know each other. And when you intensify these studies, it gets it gets a lot worse. I mean, this is just a kind of a lighthearted example. But, but let's go up one level to an example that is less lighthearted, but is not yet groups usually massacring each other, which is sports. Um, there's a book, I believe it's about uh, Duke sports teams called To Hate Like This Is To Live Forever. And it's about yes. one of the great sports rivalries. Again, if I'm getting which one wrong, I apologize for that. But that is almost the situation you're talking about. I mean, I you you have in every country on earth, to my knowledge, these very, very, very deep allegiances, allegiances that can lead to rioting, that, that can in, in many cases lead to violence, but, but that certainly lead to people structuring their lives, paying out tons of money. And their allegiances to these teams that often do not have allegiance to them, that are not where the people are not from the community that they're representing, where they will leave that community if they get a better offer from somewhere else. And yet we build very deep identities around that. And if you think about the power of sports identities, then when you, you, you go up a level to the power of identities that have tremendous societal stakes behind them, religious identities where it's about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell and what God told you to do, or political identities, which is about the allocation of resources and who gets money and who doesn't and who goes to jail and who doesn't and which wars we start and which wars we don't start. The power of this to shape our, our thinking, I, I don't think that we almost have good language for it because it operates it, – it, it, it's just the water we swim in. It, it operates almost beyond where we can we can see it. Absolutely. And if you actually think about why these sports teams, whether it's baseball, football, or soccer in Europe and Latin America, it's it's quite interesting. There is a kind of a distant tie to ethnicity, which is the form of tribal identity I'm most familiar with and, and write about. Often it's geographically rooted. For example, Barcelona, the soccer team, or even the Dallas Cowboys. Um, of course, you have fans that move from abroad, but there's this kind of sometimes for some people, the diehard fans, you know, their families have been there for, for many generations. Um, so, you know, if you're a New England patriot, you don't care what people say about Tom Brady. They, you, people can present you with all kinds of facts and just neutral evidence, and you will stick to your team. And there are studies showing this too. And I think you could see where I'm going with the politics. I mean, it's why we always, the Enlightenment view is if we just give everybody information and educate them, they will see the light. But in fact, it's almost when you stick with your team in the 
even in the face of facts that are glaringly telling you that your side is wrong, you don't experience yourself as being irrational or stupid. You feel that you're being loyal. And um, and I think that, again, gets very serious once we move out of sports to things like religion or, or, or politics. So he, here's where I wanted to, to do red shirt, blue shirt, and then sports before we got into politics. Because one way that is true that we talk about our political divide is in high-minded terms, that it's really about our views on tax policy and on health care and other things. Something that, that you really emphasize in your book is the ways in which the divide is also cultural, the ways in which there are a lot of signals about which tribe we belong to, some of which relate to, to actual policy consequences, but a lot of which are not. And one of the things you say, because I think it's good to, to maybe start the critique here, um, is you write that America's elites today, especially progressive ones, don't realize how judgmental they are. Um, and in that section, you're talking about culturally judgmental. And I'd like you to talk about that a little bit, uh, about the ways in which the progressive tribe has developed a, a, a sense of identity that is exclusionary beyond policy. I think this is one of the most problematic things right now. So this is the tribe in America that actually I'm closest to. These are all my friends and students and colleagues at Yale. And it's a kind of very, very liberal, open-minded um, in quotes, cosmopolitan elite. That is, if you, by background, you know, people, these are people who, it's it's great. They've been exposed to people of all different races and backgrounds. They've often are fairly privileged, so they've traveled around the world. So they conceive of themselves as the least tribal people. You know, th many of them don't even like nationalism. They view patriotism as sort of vulgar and lowbrow. So they're kind of cosmopolitan citizens. They believe in individual rights. Um, and, and, and human rights. And what what they miss is it's one of the most exclusionary and tribal groups of all. First of all, very few people can get into it. I mean, if you're not somebody who has traveled a lot, who has a lot of money, you, you, you can't be in this group, or it's very difficult. Secondly, they have their own vocabulary. I'm a little bit down on this term political correctness, but it is true that I'm Many of us, we know how to speak in a way that is not offensive. We know the different terms, Latinx or Latino or you know all the different gender terms. And for most people in Heartland America or just the majority, I mean, normal Americans, it's completely mystifying, which is why they're always often – they feel like they're constantly being called racist or misogynist or sexist because they say things in a way that seem very offensive or just not the way that we're used to hearing it. And um, it is a very, very tribal and small group of people and usually rooted in quite a lot of educational privilege. So, so I want to I say two things here that I think are interesting because one thing here is – first, I want to agree with that. Um, this is also the tribe I am closest to, probably the tribe I am – it is the tribe I am part of. But I also want to note that it, it goes both ways. Something I heard you say in there was normal Americans and heartland Americans. And something I've been thinking a lot of in politics about recently is the ways in which – some kinds of battles over language and identity are visible and some kinds are less visible. When you're talking about new ways to speak about gender, that's a very visible argument over identity. When you're talking about changes to representation and culture, that's a very visible form of tussling over identity and representation. On the other hand, there are things that are in our language that are also have been the product of political war. Um, I grew up in California uh, and the idea that coastal People are not normal Americans is one that 
I find very offensive. Um, not offensive in the way that makes me feel bad. I just think it's very strange. But on the other hand, it is the product of a long-running political war that is now faded into the background. I'm not criticizing you for using those terms. I use them too, Heartland America, et cetera. Um, but I, but I want to note that because something I think we can sometimes do is look at this language as if it is as if the new parts are the fight and the old parts are sort of the norm. When one thing that these are high stakes battles and they've been playing out in America for a very long time. And, and one thing that I think is happening in this period of demographic change is as more of it gets challenged, more of it on all sides becomes discernible and the consensus over how we talk breaks down. And as that happens, all the sides get angrier and feel more threatened. Um, you know, the, 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 the amount of back and forth over who represents America now seems to me to be very profound in a way where it used to be that one group really had a claim to represent America and they were able to win that claim and, and hold it over a very, very long period of time. And now it's under challenge that is seen as not just normal, but a claim. But that's but that is putting everyone under threat. Ezra, I could not agree with you more. And um, so let me just say something about this, because this is kind of like a, a big point of mine. Um, backing out a little bit, for most of my career, I've been writing about these market-dominant minorities in other countries, like the tiny 3% Chinese minority in Indonesia that is, you know, kind of dominates a lot of the economy, or the 14% or 10% whites in South Africa, or these tiny white European-blooded minority in countries like Bolivia, where the majority is largely indigenous. Um, what happens in these countries over and over is when you finally have elections, often you get demagogues that do exactly what you're saying. They they target a certain group and they say those powerful people or the, those are actually outsiders. They are not really part of this country. And I think that right now these coastal or urban or these educated people. So absolutely, it's both ways. You see resentful, I mean, you know, more disadvantaged parts of the population really being manipulated by demagogues who come in and literally use that same language, which is, let's take back America. They use terms like real Americans. These people don't care about real Americans. They care about international poor. They don't care, you know, take back our country. And this is um, kind of demagogic, very racially inflected dialogue that I've seen a lot in developing countries, and we're seeing it right here now. Let me say what I mean by racially inflected. The coastal populations, because they're associated with being very more pro-minority and pro-immigrant, even, you know, including some minorities and immigrants, it's very easy for scapegoating politicians to tap into that and almost paint these coastal elites or coastal people as not true Americans, partly because they're of the color of their skin or their accents or where they came from. So so I actually think we're on the same page there. I think it runs in both directions. And it's part of this, you know, are we two nations living in one America right now? This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So one thing that I think the idea of market-dominant minorities relates to in America right now, and, and, and this is choppy water here, so I'll ask people to, to interpret me generously as I try to talk my way through it, is we are in a profound fight around cultural dominance. I think we're in a more profound fight over cultural dominance than we are over economic dominance. This is actually a, a space of disagreement I have in your book, and, and I, I want to talk about it, where I think we have more comfort framing things economically. I think that there is a, a very deep desire to map things onto different kinds of economic disadvantage and inequality. But a lot of the fights as they play out and the places where they're most zero sum are cultural. And something people feel in recent years, a place where there's been a very, very fast change is in terms of cultural positions of power. You've not seen a closing of the racial wealth gap in recent years. You've not seen sharp increases in incomes for uh, black or brown um, uh, groups, but you have seen an African-American president. You have seen a very, very big and loud and culturally present push for diverse casting in movies and television. You have been lectured by Chris Rock if you tuned into the Oscars. You have watched uh, football players kneel during the national anthem. And something that seems to me to be true is that before before we're in a majority-minority America, there is a coalition, possibly already a coalition that is a majority, that is becoming more comfortable with that. I mean, Democrats have won the popular vote in whatever it is, six of the last seven elections. Um, on the other hand, that sort of cultural challenge is very, very threatening. And as people feel that happening, the resentment is exploding. And in politics, because we don't really control culture from politics and we don't always have great ways of talking about culture and politics, I think we are rechanneling that into what we know how to talk about, which is economics. Even though if you look at the economic data and, and you look at how people are reacting to the economy, for instance, with Republicans feeling the economy is much, much, much better now that Trump is elected, even though the economy has not changed that much since Trump has been elected and certainly their condition has not changed that much, I think that there is a fight over the distribution of cultural power that is very profound right now and which and in which no group feels currently like a majority. Yeah, you know, I um I, I again, I think we're using different vocabulary but probably circling around the same point. So two things, um America is unique in that this this American dream uh, the rags to riches narrative, which you know many of us will expose as false, a lie, or at least you know overblown, is actually very powerful. Whatever the actual reality is, so we are one of the few countries in the world where our working class Americans or you know blue collar, lower income Americans don't hate capitalism. In fact, it's more my students, it's more progressive, relatively privileged Americans that are more interested in socialism. They're still, um, they don't hate the rich. 
um, they hate the idea of a rigged, snobby system, but not necessarily um, Kim Kardashian or, or, you know, the people who win on Shark Tank or, or, or Apprentice. So that's one piece of it. Um, the second piece is in this term, I, I coined this term ethno-nationalism light, which I think is another way of getting at your cultural dominance point. I think it's really over... Um, stated, and I don't think it's helping the debate for people, for progressives to call, you know, half the country white supremacists or white nationalists. I, mean, I think that's just, you know, more partisan vitriol, and it's not helping. But I, I think that it is true that a large portion of the country are terrified. And I think this is where I agree with you. They are looking at all the hit pop songs and what's happening to the Grammys and what's happening to the Oscars and the ads they see and constantly being saying that they can't talk the way that they're used to speaking. And this, so while they don't, I don't think half the country wants, um, you know, to expel all minorities. I mean, I think most Americans, if you look at the surveys, they they love the idea of America as a land of immigrants. But they long for a time when minorities were less visible, less loud, and basically more grateful. It's it's what I term ethno-nationalism light. It's like, can, we still want to have them, but can they just not be so problematic all the time? And can we go back to the, the kind of more country music? You know, the Mad Men picture wasn't necessarily that bad for a lot of people, even though it was, you know, a, a real statement for, 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 for others. So this feels to me like an important point. And, and it's something that I have trouble talking about and writing about in a way that I think is clear. But I think that what is very visible in America is the new claims for status. And then there is this backlash to the new claims. I shouldn't even say new, but the more powerful claims for status that are emerging. Um, and then there's a very visible backlash to the, the more powerful claims for status. Then I think we have this conversation, which is about extremism in the rhetoric, which is, you know, obviously Donald Trump is very extreme rhetoric, but there's a real focus on, on, on campuses or on tone policing on Twitter or, you know, what people can and can't say and whether or not that, that's generous or it's unfair or whether or not people are being called racist. And there's like this idea that if only we could somehow bring down the tone of the conversation, we would have a lot of this fixed. And my intuition is that the tone of the conversation is getting hotter because the underlying fight is getting hotter. And what we don't have, what I never hear people with, is an answer for that underlying fight. Um, as you just said, I think that there's a real feeling of people who do not see themselves as racist, but they preferred an America, they would prefer an America, where their coalition, where their group or their tribe has more power. And where, um, you know, and if the effects of that are that, uh, tribes that don't look like them are, are, are doing worse, that that's okay with them. That, that's what they were comfortable with. They, that, that was when America was great. And, you know, there's a lot of, I think, sympathy towards the anxiety they feel. And then there's separately a lot of sympathy for the claims that the sort of more multicultural America is making. But there's some sort of weird disconnect in the conversation where I don't think people, I think people somehow seem to think we can do this, whatever this is, this kind of change in our demographics, without a lot of conflict, if we just get the language right. Whereas I kind of see the language as a reflection of the seriousness of the transition we're going through. And, and, and 
that is not meant as a good thing. It actually makes me pretty deeply concerned because these are the kinds of transitions both in our country and in others. I mean, if you look back into the 60s or you look back earlier in American history, you look at any other country on earth, that they come with political breakdown. They come with bloodshed. They're not that they, they are not usually managed gracefully. Yeah, I I think that um, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this is a good thing either, but Part of, you know, what is so distressing for so many people is finally um, more oppressed voices finally having a little bit more political power. As we said earlier, when you have a very dominant majority, economically, politically, culturally, it can feel very stable. And for a lot of people, it's like, oh, you know, we're colorblind, we're universalist, we're liberal. But in fact, that's just because there's so many oppressed, silenced voices. Take China. I mean, China is very stable. It's the Han Chinese, 95% of the population, economically, politically, culturally dominant. You don't see what we're seeing here. So part of this is, I think, a, 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 a necessary reckoning and fighting. Where I slightly disagree with you is it, it's a chicken and egg problem. I agree that there are underlying massive problems. And it's not like, oh, if we just change our language a little bit. But I think I tend to be more of an optimist. Um, you know, we really uh, – there are lots of studies that show that – this may sound very unrealistic. Um, that's part of the problem. But if you can pull people out of their tribes, even just for a couple of hours, and put two people together and say, don't talk about politics. Talk about pets or dogs or pizza or your children – they will find common ground. You know, the integration of the military in the 50s was the best example. Nobody thought that was going to work. But it did. When people really are forced to interact with each other as human beings and have to trust each other, you really do see astonishing progress. And this is where the language comes in for me because it's almost like both sides now. It's just this game of gotcha. It's so depressing for me. It's you you can't even have a conversation. You know, everybody's just waiting for you to, to, to slip up. And um, and so to me, it just kind of makes the problem worse. So this is the part of the book that I I read with such pessimism, to be honest. Uh, he, he, the book did such a good job for me of describing so many aspects of the problem. And then, you know, this is a hard problem. And, and, and the solutions... I. The studies that you you narrate of if you can get people into a one-on-one -on -one discussion, if you can help them feel themselves um, outside of politics, I think that's all correct. But then to do that at scale when there are these political questions, I, I think is really profoundly difficult. And I'll give a, a very specific example here. One of the ways I read the past couple of years in American politics is the Democratic Party has become substantially more Hispanic. And as that has happened, the Democratic Party's orientation on immigration has changed very rapidly in the past couple of years. I mean, even if you go back and look at the party platform in 08 to now, the, the way it approaches immigration has become substantially more liberal, substantially more recognizing of the um, interests of both authorized and unauthorized immigrants. The Republican Party has at times tried to accommodate that, but mostly has stood against it. But so what you have is a, is a changing in the political agenda where what are we going to do about immigration becomes the topic. And then that partially powers the rise of Donald Trump. And so – and obviously Donald Trump's view on immigration is – has is a backlash view, right? It's it's more conservative than what was coming before him, at least immediately. If you look at Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan, I mean, this was not build a wall. Uh, th this was something else. And now Donald Trump is trying to cut legal immigration. And so what you end up with 
in this era is not just Twitter tone policing, but actual fights over very, very, very genuine and big policy changes and, and trends, right? I mean, immigration is actually a trend about how fast America will brown. And that is, I, I don't know how we manage that without it being a war over political power. Um, I, I don't think it's a communications issue. And I don't know that we can do it smoothly. That just seems to me to be a way in which what is coming, and I think you see it in Black Lives Matter and questions of police brutality, I think what is coming is the agenda is going to be shaped around issues that elicit much more, particularly of racial and gender-based identity. I think those issues are important. I, I tend to be on the multicultural side of them. I, I come from an area that was very heavily immigrant. My, my father is an immigrant. But I think that compared to when the agenda was controlled by two parties that were both a lot whiter and a lot more Christian and, and a lot more homogenous, that the nature of politics going forward is going to be more divisive, conflictual, and, and tribal in a way that I don't, I don't see an answer for. Uh, it is. We're, we're really at a precarious moment. I mean, the demographic uh, transformation in just the last 20 years has been seismic. And if you step back as an academic, they're actually quite predictable. Um, a couple of things. I mean, I I, um, I guess tend to be more optimistic than you. I think that um, as horrific as the current situation seems to be um, in American politics, I am in the this is a wake up call camp. I think both sides of the political spectrum have been playing with fire, not realizing what is going on. Uh, and this is not to equate, you know, you know, this is I'm, I'm not going to do the usual caveats. Um, there's 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 terrible stuff going on. And I'm incredibly proud of what my students at Yale have been doing in, you know, in part of the, their resistance and standing up for, for, for rule of law. But I think that a lot of progressives just didn't realize that. There was a lot of crying wolf and a lot of the identity mongering and, and and it was just almost like for fun, their own identity formation. Some of it was incredibly important. But, you know, I had a, a student I'm very close to who actually loves this show. Um, his dad is an undocumented student worker great. from Mexico. Yeah. Um, but he is sick and tired of the focus on excessive um, concern with this cultural appropriation stuff. I mean, he says the idea that, you know, you go in and somebody's serving inauthentic nachos or, or, or wearing a sombrero, there are so many graver, more terrible problems. And if the line that I love and that I quote him as saying is, if everything is racist, then nothing is. So I think there, I, I see even adjustment, even with, you know, progressives looking to 2018 and, and you know, kind of a little bit of a change. I mean, of course, we still care about the same issues, and there's something important underlying these. But just taking it a little bit more seriously, getting rid of some of the more trivial things, um, and, and I think there's the same on the conservative side. A lot of people said, oh, let the rage mongering go, and some of this conspiracy theory stuff is okay. I think people were shocked that that helped elect a president that is not at all what, what many Republicans wanted. So I tend to be more expecting a, a realignment, a rethinking, um, a, a kind of a slight maturing maybe, and, and you know, some shifting of uh, – I think the parties are not going to look the same either. I'm going to push. I'm going to push pessimism here. I'm going to. I'm going to stay on pessimism. So there's a great word you use there, which is focus. Um, and this seems to me to be part of the whole conversation. One ways in which one way in which we held to a more homogenous culture, in addition to to, to dominance of of a 
white majority was also that we had a media sphere, um, communications technologies that were less fractured and, and in many ways less competitive. You had monopolies in, in local areas from a newspaper. You had three television networks, uh, on and on and on. Everybody knows the background of this story. But when I hear you talk about or, or your student talk about a focus on culturally appropriative nachos, to me, and, and this happens on you know with things that the right does too, of course, that's not really a focus of politicians. It's not a focus of a dominant or even powerful political majority. It's the kind of thing that happens on campuses or on a Twitter hashtag. But now we have both these communication technologies that elevate intense feelings from niche groups. And then we have fractured media spheres that zero in on the most outrageous things from the other group. So, I mean, both Facebook and Fox News and MSNBC and Twitter, they all thrive in different ways on outrage. And one thing that I just often see, and I see it a lot in the conversation over campus liberalism, I went to UC Santa Cruz, a lot of wacky stuff happened there, but just none of it became a, a point on Fox News tonight because it wasn't bubbling up through Twitter. You know, there is a ability to see the most extreme version of the other side and then a sort of militarized searching for the most extreme other version of the other side in order to present to your side to strengthen their their tribal bonds. It feels like a real accelerant of this. Um, you know, everything you're talking about, it, it these were human dimensions for a very long time, but it feels to me that we have entered into a space where the particularly the communications environment we're in pushes more towards niche groups, pushes more towards negative emotions, and also ends up presenting us a lot more with the most extreme version of the other side. And so I think that when we talk to people, we always get this more moderate version. But then when we look at each other, we always get this more extreme version. I think that's true. And I, I, I hate to, this is one little pocket where I share your pessimism. Um, I I can't stand, you know, I mean, I, it's just so frustrating. I can barely listen to those outlets anymore. But have you noticed this, Ezra? Um, tons of people are saying, they're tweeting, they're saying, I'm sick of cable news. I'm sick of these social media. I mean, people are starting to notice. So, um, you know, things often change, like even among my own students, I have a lot of people um, sick of it. And if you look, again, you're right. It's not the loudest voices, because I guess that, you know, generates more more hits. But if you look at Sarah Silverman's show, or somebody just told me about this organization called Better Angels, I do think that it, it's quieter, um, but that you're, you're starting to see some people just very tired of it. Um, you know, I am kind of like from the same exact background as you, from much more the multicultural side. I'm a child of two immigrants. I've written two books about how important immigration is to the strength of this country. But I think that we're going to need courageous leaders, including media leaders or thought leaders like, you know, podcast leaders. Um, I think, for example, take immigration, something you mentioned, one of the most important topics. And I'm... I. Of course, I'm a huge fan of immigration. I think that this this uh, seismic demographic change we've had is dislocating. That's just true. You don't have to be a racist uh, to look around and, and just you know worry a little bit. And I think that we, there's got to be a way that people could say, you know, I'm I'm a little bit worried about immigration and how what, what the restrictions should be without instantly being labeled a racist xenophobe or same with terrorism. You know, I think 
we should, somebody should be able to say, you know, I'm a little bit worried about terrorism from the Middle East. Oh, my God, I, you know, you could never say that on, on a college campus. I would never use those words. That would be Islamophobe, you know, look at the white terrorists. But just there are a lot of conversations that lots and lots of Americans want to have. And it's almost like there's just absolutely no way to, to, to say them right now. So, so I think at some point, this could go really the bad way, and you could be right with your pessimist vision. Or it could get to a point where some courageous, brave um, politician or leader is going to say, this is ridiculous, and I'm going to be the voice of reason. And I think lots of people will support that. Let me ask you about that, that courageous, brave leader um, and, and, and how that would work. Because one of the reasons I have for pessimism is the experience of the Obama presidency on, on this particular topic. At the end of the book, when you're talking about how should a leader talk about this, you actually quote Obama, right? We're not a red America. We're not a blue America. This is a guy who thought a lot about polarization, who ran for president on a, on a, on a platform, at least rhetorical, of bringing people together. I think, you know, he obviously had liberal p- policy positions, but I do think he tried hard in his rhetoric and tried hard in the way he thought about politics to resist at least some of the division. And yet this we are living through the aftermath of that. Um, we are living through the backlash to that. How do you read the Obama experience? Pretty dark. Uh, I mean, I've, I share a very similar view. I mean, this is a person who could who's who's just brilliant and um, one of the most impressive people I've, I've, I've ever encountered. And so, yes, it's uh, I think there is something to 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 what Van Jones calls white lash. Um, it's coupled with other things. I think that it's not everything, but it's a piece of it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's grounds for for pessimism. I think maybe flipping this little bit. President Obama is one of the most articulate people, and there is a very professorial side to him. So he says things really well. And I think maybe um, I'm sort of side-glancing your question. One thing people might learn when I'm, when we're talking about these politicians in the future that can, can do something, I think – Maybe one teeny lesson that one could learn from Donald Trump is he just doesn't fall into any boxes. Um, you know, President Obama, like all other distinguished presidents, you know, usually he followed a certain routine. If there's this kind of a massacre, you issue this kind of a statement. And But I, I think there is something to be said for it being a little bit um, just saying things that don't always fall into the expected categories. Like everybody in my team right now says this. And this is one thing that I've noticed in this new tribalism. Right now, it's almost like um, I worry that we've lost one of the biggest advantages of, of democracy. One of the great advantages of democracy over authoritarianism is that we can self-correct. We have some bad policies. We can vote them out. Bad leader, vote them out. Unlike an authoritarian regime where you can stick with these terrible policies for you know 50 years. But right now in our tribal moment – it, it's sort of like to show how much resistance we have to this president that, you know, most of the people I know just despise. It, it's the TPP was right. The policy t- toward Iran was right. The policy to North Korea. Every single thing that was done under the democratic regime was right. Um, and, you know, maybe that's not the best way to, 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 to deal with future elections also. I think, you know, trying to learn a little bit from from even if it's somebody that we really disagree with, what what's what speaks to to lots of people um, in the country. But that's an interesting thing because one of the things that does not seem to be as powerful as one might expect is that kind of policy rethinking. TPP is, is a good example. That's somewhere where I think it's clear that in our heart of hearts, Hillary Clinton was pro Trans Pacific Partnership trade deal. 
Um, it had begun even under her office. But she bowed to pressure and began to oppose it. Uh, this is something where a lot of policy responsiveness doesn't seem capable of, of overwhelming some of these tribal things. And, and I think possibly for the reasons you you describe, something that I'd love to hear you talk a bit, little bit more about is a way that you see Donald Trump as culturally reflective of his coalition in ways that splits him much further from, from the liberal coalition. Because I think the implication of some of it is if a lot of these debates actually boil down to a more visceral sense of who represents whom, then policy may not be able to bridge the gap. I think that's right. So there's been this long thing about how can all these working class Americans uh, have been conned by this guy who is the most elite of elites. He's born in Manhattan. He's a billionaire. And to me, it goes back to your cultural points. I think just in terms of the way the values he has, the, the way he speaks and dresses and talks, um, Donald Trump really is much more um, similar to many working class Americans, and frankly, not just white ones. And for a lot of, I, going back to your earlier point, I, I think one of the, I think it's an emergency right now, the, um, the question of uh, decline in social mobility and upward mobility. And yes, it's not these, you know, just getting people together and talking kumbaya that's going to solve this. We do have to solve these structural economic problems. And I think a lot of people who feel like, you know, I still want to believe in the American dream, um, love to, you know, love to imagine that my kids could get rich someday, but cannot do it. You know, education is now so closed. Um, uh, social mobilities down, um, you know, worse than a lot of other European countries. Donald Trump represents somebody who outsmarted the system. So he says all these terrible things that for, for, for a lot of us are just outrageous. Like, you know, Hillary Clinton asked them during the 2016 debates, you know, you didn't pay any federal income taxes. And he says, that just means I'm smart. When he declared bankruptcy, he's like, I, I used, I brilliantly used the bankruptcy system. And bizarrely, a lot of people who feel cheated and kind of left out of the system love this guy that is outsmarting the system. He, you know, keeps surprising the so-called experts, the pointy-headed people that are always using this language that they can't understand and calling them misogynist or racist or xenophobic. And a lot of people relate to this guy. And he's almost like a like a WWE champion. He's in the ring. He keeps fighting. He makes a lot of mistakes, but he doesn't give up. So so I think he actually speaks to a lot of people in the country. And and again, it's it's there's a lot of focus on the white working class, but it's it's not only whites. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact. 
helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like can we learn to make smarter decisions and the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. So I think the the interesting challenge to that, which, which is not to deny it because I think it's clearly true, but... Another way of thinking about this election and and about this period in politics is that we are putting so much intellectual horsepower and repertorial horsepower towards understanding this very different thing that happened, you know, working backwards from Donald Trump's traits to the nature of his coalition. Donald Trump represents white working class Americans, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at the election results, I mean, there are some changes around the margins, but it overwhelmingly looks like 2012. If you just go through, Donald Trump's coalition looks like Mitt Romney's coalition. Hillary Clinton's coalition looks like Barack Obama's coalition. She does a little worse among African-Americans, a little better, we think, among Hispanics. He does a little better among the white working class, a little worse among uh, the college-educated white voters. But it's pretty similar. And so this is something that I thought the book underrated, which is the persistence and power of simply the Republican and Democratic identities. That feels to me beyond what is different or unique about Donald Trump to be the, the the bigger explanatory factor here, which is that the Republican and Democratic identities are now so strong and the fear of the other side is now so strong that even if a lot of Republicans felt a little uncomfortable about Donald Trump, they sure as hell weren't going to vote for a Democrat. And the same would be true going the other way. And that identity formation I, I don't know. I mean, the I feel like we have a lot of evidence of it, and we have no idea what to do about it. I think that's right. And I think there's a lot of evidence about how um, the Democratic and Republican identities have actually themselves become much more tribal. So that, you know, there are these studies that say that people now, you know, would feel extremely upset if their child married somebody from the other party. And that starts to look more like an ethnicity kind of identity where you know, the kind of stuff that I write about, really tribalism in a more technical sense. What, where does that lead? Because one thing about the, the Democratic-Republican identities that, that is interesting to me is that they're now getting stacked. Um, there used to be a lot more what, what social identity theorists call cross-pressuring. So you might be a Democrat and a member of a union, but you lived in the South. And, you know, I mean, there, there was a lot of different things going on in you. And so it created more... Uh, internal dissension over your identity. And so you had this Democratic Party that had these conservative Southerners in it and this Republican Party with liberals in it. And so you had examples in the other party of people who agree with you even more than people in your party did. And, you know, we had these sort of strange ideologically and culturally mixed parties. And then we've really sorted. And so now all of your identities, where you live and what color you are, and it's all stacked on top of each other, creating all this weight on the identity and all this distance from 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 the other political tribe. 
And that feels to me to be a, a very, very powerful driver of our politics now. How do you think that right. differs from the ethnic identities? How do you think we should think about um, a, a polity that works that way? Well, this is um, sort of one of the big points in the book. Um, I, I, I often tell an anecdote. You know, I've been writing for 20 years mostly about developing countries in Latin America and Southeast Asia and Africa. And I would always um, criticize U.S. foreign policymakers for saying because our country and our demographics and our political dynamics are so different from the developing worlds, we get it wrong because we're just not familiar with this. And last spring, two months after Donald Trump was elected, I was talking about, you know, same old theme, talking about, look, in developing countries, you can get um, vote-seeking demagogues with almost no political experience sweeping to power on an anti-establishment platform by scapegoating minorities. And, and suddenly I stopped and, you know, 80 people are looking at me saying, it sounds like you're describing the United States. So to your point, I, I think because of demographic changes, but also a drastic decline in geographical mobility, we are starting to get some of the dynamics that are historically more associated with what we would call developing countries. Um, and yes, it, in the past, we've had I would have called it cross-cutting cleavages. So we have groups that are, you know, you, you have there's religion and race and ethnicity and jobs and class all going different directions. So you don't get this rigid political structure like in Iraq where all the Shias voted for Shia candidates and all the Sunnis voted for Sunni candidates. And this is something I'm worried about. I think that you're absolutely right. In recent times, it looks more rigidified. And I think another big piece of the answer is we really need to work on this geographical, and which is linked to cultural mobility. People don't we, – we have a lot of intermarriage and all that stuff, but it's, it's really limited to certain urban areas and the coasts. There are all these studies showing that in kind of, you know, the big center and south of the country – Many people really have not interacted as one-on-one -on -one with, with Muslims or, or, or Chinese people or, or people from Mexico, I mean, other than just in a very distant way. Um, so I think, you know, if you're asking me, you know, what, which direction, I, I'm, I'm very much in favor of these programs that pull people out and really put them in situations, not in a condescending way, like, oh, let's come from the coast and go help these other people, but really interacting with them and uh, trying to break down these increasingly rigid barriers between our you know, two Americas or two or more Americas. Well, one thing I wonder about with that, you mentioned as an example that earlier military integration, which I think is an interesting example because one of the things that has been an ingredient in periods of racial progress uh, in America before is a uniting external enemy, um, the Axis powers. So we have to do military integration at some level. Uh, or the Soviet Union, so that we, we need to shore up the idea of American democracy as inclusionary as opposed to exclusionary. And I mean, that was a, the Soviet Union used our racial hierarchies against us very effectively. And it's something that is one reason American policymakers responded. It's certainly not the only reason, but, but it was part of it. And you know, politics can can elicit different identities from people. Depending on what is on the docket, we can imagine ourselves as Americans or whites or Christians or Jews or whatever it might be. And it seems to me that some of these big advances in identity came when there was an a them that made the us bigger, uh, a them that made the, the America bigger, and that some of our, our current 
internal divisions come from the absence of that organizing them. The them becomes internal. The them becomes people competing with us internally for resources as opposed to the threat beyond our borders who make us unite. I wonder if we can do that without the external threat. You're absolutely right about that. I mean, even uh, certainly even just after 9-11, you saw people coming together. Um, it was a very unifying moment. It's ironic. I mean, right now with these Russian bots, um, they're actually – it's like they're they're doing divide, a kind of a version of divide and conquer, um, uh, you know, taking our divisions and then, it, it, then exacerbating them. I think what complicates what you're saying is that even – that part of the one of part of the cosmopolitan identity, or the, the identity that I'm most familiar with, the um, kind of multicultural identity, is actually a much more um, negative view about what America's relationship to the rest of the world will be. Um, you know, it's what I'm saying is a lot of people don't necessarily think that America should be number one. I mean, that that that's part of the the cosmopolitan identity that that's that's a bad mentality. So so things are a little bit more complicated right now. I mean, you know, when you had the Cold War, you you, you had this big Russia on the other side. Um, right now, it's all endogenous. Even what our relationship, what our position should be in the world, is 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 part of the 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 battle for what America should be. One thing that I wonder from your studies of, of, of other countries is when there have been these periods where the dominant majority is beginning to lose power or at least lose dominance is maybe the better way to put it. When is this navigated well? What are, what are, what are positive examples here? Wow, you're pushing me towards the pessimist camp. <laughs> um, so a line that I have uh, is that Unfortunately, um, once a group is dominant, it will cede that dominance extremely reluctantly. Um, and I, I, I do think that's part of what we're seeing in this country, absolutely, with a, with a once very um, dominant white majority, um, culturally, as you say, but also politically. Um, I look at examples from uh, – Afghanistan may seem really crazy different from us, but the most Americans don't realize this, but the Taliban are largely Pashtun. The Pashtun is one particular ethnic tribe that dominated the whole country from its founding. Afghanistan was founded by a Pashtun. It was mostly ruled by Pashtuns for all those years. And right in around after the Cold War, the Pashtuns started losing um, uh, they started fearing that they would lose that dominance. And, and that's when you saw all this, you know, just desperate attempt to, to cling to their dominance. Um, and that's pretty much true everywhere I've looked. So I, I don't have any great examples of any, any dominant group ceding that power gracefully. Well, having converted you to the side of pessimism, that, that's a good place to close. So let me ask you our, our, our always final question around here, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you either for this project or, or not that you would recommend the audience read? Well, one book I absolutely loved is The Possessed by Elif Batuman for tribalism, an old – my first book that I read cover to cover on on tribalism was a book called Ethnic Groups in Conflict by Donald Horowitz. And I just most recently fell in love with a book by Tara Westover called Educated, which is truly remarkable. It's a it's an unbelievable memoir about a, a young girl who was raised with um, no education. Um, her parents forbade them from going to school, 
um, she had carburetors thrown at them. They were these millennialists saving money, um, saving food for, for, for the apocalypse. I just recommend the book. And while you're checking those out, you check out uh, Amy Chua's new book, Political Tribes. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you to Professor Chua. Thank you to my producer, Bert Pinkerton. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production, and we will be back next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.